Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are very happy to welcome Alexander Jaloyan back to the program. Alexander, doesn't seem like it was that long ago we had visited, but for the sake of people who are meeting you for the very first time, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, no problem. Well, Brian, first of all, thank you for having me again. Uh, it's always a good day when I get to come by and uh, speak with you a little bit. Um, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Alexander Jaloyan. I work for a group called the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. We do a lot of research on developing countries in Africa. There's a big new trade deal going into effect over there. So we're trying to write papers about how those things can uh, most benefit the African people. Um, and as part of Young Voices, I spend a lot of time kind of researching U.S. foreign policy to Africa and also kind of China's strategy in Africa. So those are the topics that really interest me. Um, and yeah, I'm glad to be back here talking with you again. And hopefully um, some of your listeners find something we talk about interesting. So we'll see. Well, I'm looking at an article you wrote for International Policy Digest titled America Can't Ignore China's Growing Role in African Education. And I believe you and I've talked about China making inroads in Africa um, economically, you know, building infrastructure and establishing uh, trade and presence and so forth. Uh, they, they've had foreign policy goals in Africa for some time. I don't think I've ever considered the education angle. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's a really good place to start, Brian, is um, this piece that I wrote really has to be seen in the light of China's total comprehensive strategy for what they're trying to do in Africa. So as you mentioned, you know, China's influence through the Belt and Road Initiative um, has certainly deepened economic ties with African states. In addition, They've been able to send more and more military troops into Africa. They have a base up in Djibouti. It's in East Africa. That's their first overseas military base. But this specific piece that I wrote has to do with Africa's um, growing reliance on China for education needs. Um, so basically, what exactly does that mean? There's increasing numbers of African students that are going to China and being educated in China. And then they come back to their home countries and you know get positions in government, get positions in businesses. Um, and become pretty prominent players because they have a university degree. So what I wanted to draw attention to in this article is the fact that 10 years ago, China was not a destination for African students. African students would go to the UK, they would go to France, they would go to the United States um, for education, and then they were being educated in kind of Western developed democracies. Nowadays, that has significantly changed, and China has become the second largest destination for African students to study abroad. Um, so basically, it's difficult to know exactly how this manifests in each individual African student. You know, there's probably many students that go that are getting you know, an engineering degree and they come back home and it doesn't really have an influence on their politics or things like that. However, um, I certainly think I think that this allows the CCP to have influence to kind of identify um, people that might have political aspirations in Africa, people that might have business or entrepreneurial um, aspirations in Africa, and then their ability to kind of influence those people, get them to deepen ties with China over time, um, is something I think the West needs to be aware about. And I don't know if we've done a very good job. Um, so I'm hoping to draw some attention to that issue. Um, so we'll see if it, if it works. You actually asked the question in your article, why should Americans be bothered when other countries send their students? And, and in particular, uh, where, where is the interest? Why should Americans be paying attention to what's going on in Africa in this case? Yeah, well, that's a very good point. And I think that's something that the American public has not really become super aware of, is the fact that Africa is growing in strategic importance. Uh, I mean, Africa is a continent rich in um, uh, natural resources. 
Um, Africa is a country that is growing exponentially. Um, it's, it's estimated that over the next 100 years, um, Africa will become the most populous continent on, in the world. Um, and so this is something that is definitely um, going to become increasingly important on the geopolitical stage going forward. And so this idea of having increasing numbers of Africans deepening ties with the Chinese should be a bit worrying. I could totally understand someone saying, oh, well, why does it matter if Kenya is sending its students to France? I mean, we're friends with France. It's all good. France and I in America have pretty similar interests. Um, but the difference is China's not that way. You know, China is a, is an, is a competitor to the United States. I mean, to see them spreading their influence across the sea, across um, seas into the United Nations, getting more and more African states to buy into their um, a kind of authoritarian development path um, is something that's going to be very challenging for America. And I'll add one more thing to that. Um, I think that we can already see that in terms of some economic sectors. So one thing that China has been very successful in is kind of cornering the market for solar panels. And a lot of those resources come from the very heart of Africa in the Congo. But Chinese companies have been able to make deals with African governments and extract a lot of those natural resources to the point now where like 90 percent of solar panels are built in China, but they are using African resources. And so this is something that America is going to need to address or else we're going to be reliant upon the CCP for things like solar panels, for renewable energy and things of that nature. So I think that this education aspect also ties into that kind of going forward. Talk to me about the importance of of education in not just, you know, lending a helping hand, you know, oh, look, we're going to help educate your students, but actually uh, conditioning them or perhaps even training them to think the way that uh, CCP leaders would want them to think. Yeah, well, and and that's a good point. I mean, these are, you know, young, impressionable um, teenagers, young adults um, that are kind of seeking a better life for themselves. And Africa is a continent that has had um, great difficulty. Um, you know, creating research institutions that are reputable on the world stage. Um, there are a number of very, very good African universities. But one thing that's kind of been a challenge for them is many of the brightest Africans end up going abroad for education and then living abroad. So someone might go to Harvard and then stay at Harvard, you know, stay in America instead of coming back to their home country, building a business there and going in that way. So with this kind of impressionable time of students' lives, and having them going to universities in Beijing, universities in China in general, um, it does kind of open the door for more authoritarian ideology to influence the way that they think. Um, also, China is a master of propaganda outlet where they oftentimes do not present themselves um, accurately or honestly. And so these African students might be getting a warped view of China um, that will influence their business dealings in the future that might influence the way that they perceive China's foreign policy goals. Um, and these are definitely things that are, that are likely antithetical to what the U.S. hopes to do. Um, and so I really do see this as a sort of two, three decade long investments that China is making where they're saying, hey, if we can bring in more and more African students into Chinese universities and 20 years from now, we can look around the African continent and see government officials in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Nairobi, everywhere. Um, this is going to be something that they would love to see because they know that they're able to exert their influence in that fashion. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I guess I hope that answers the question. Oh, yeah. Now, I have to ask you this. Um, to counter what China is doing, what would the best response be on the part of the United States? 
Yes. Yeah. And that, that is, I think, the important question is, okay, we have this issue. You know, what do we do about this going forward? Um, and in my piece, what I advocate for um, is at the upcoming U.S.-Africa Leader Summit that's happening in D.C. about a month from today. It's on um, December 14th is when they're beginning. There's going to be a huge gathering of African leaders and U.S. leaders um, in Washington, D.C. And so what I'm hoping that the U.S. government does is not only address, you know, economic ties, not only address things like security ties, which are certainly topics that are going to be covered at that summit. What I want um, American leaders to bring up is that, hey, we want our students in America to learn more about Africa, and we want African students coming to America. So what I really advocate for is a sort of joint exchange program where students from American universities are getting increasing opportunities to study in Africa, and where African students get increasing um, opportunities to study in America so that we can also begin to deepen those um, economic ties, to understand the rich history of the African continent, and to hopefully give students an alternative um, to Chinese universities. Um, I believe in American universities. I believe that our values of, of democracy and human rights and liberty is really attractive to Africans. And so I'm hoping that we can address this issue at that conference um, and hopefully make it known that, hey, we want to be competing um, for the best and brightest Africans to be educated in America and for the best and brightest Americans to also go over to Africa and learn there. We got about one minute left, Alexander. So I have to ask you this. Um, as, as far as uh, w- making this begin or, or getting this initiative underway, what's preventing us? Why hasn't this happened sooner? Are there obstacles that are in the way? Well, you know, that's a very good question. I think a lot of it's just kind of been blindness. I think for a long time, America has kind of taken Africa for granted um, and not really engaged with the continent in a serious fashion. And I think that now that China and Russia both are becoming increasingly prevalent on the continent, we're sort of waking up and saying, no, we need to do something about this. Like We need to compete for these countries. We want them to be on our side um, in any type of global alignment scenario. Um, so I think most of it has just probably been um, human error you know, on, on the American's part. But thankfully, we're waking up to it soon. So hopefully that the, the summit could be a good area to address some of these issues. OK, it wasn't on my radar screen before, but it is now December 14th. We'll be I'll be keeping an eye out for this conference uh, taking place. Where was it again? Is it in Washington? It's in Washington, D.C. Okay. Very good. We've been visiting with Alexander Jaloyan. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Alexander, where can people follow your work? Yes. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at A Jaloyan, J-E-L-L-O-I-A-N. Also, um, if you want to check out the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity, we have a great YouTube channel, great website, uh, lots of good stuff up there that you'll probably find very interesting. to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Quinn Townsend back to the program. Quinn, we didn't talk that long ago, but uh, for those who don't know, she is a policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum, and she's also a Young Voices contributor, and I probably missed a few other of the hats that you wear. Anything you want to fill us in on? Um, Nope. I work for an organization in Alaska, but I live here in West Virginia currently. All right, we're going to be talking about West Virginia, as luck would have it. Um, specifically, we're talking about uh, West Virginia has opened the door for the possibility of, of going nuclear. And we mean that in the best possible way. What exactly are we talking about here? So this spring, West Virginia um, got rid of two, two laws that um, didn't that 
prevented any kind of nuclear energy production um, from occurring in the state. So the doors are now wide open um, for nuclear energy to come to come to the state and for the state to to utilize nuclear energy production. Now, when we talk nuclear energy production, I got really excited when I read the article that you'd written for uh, Roanoke.com because you talked about small modular nuclear nuclear reactors and also micro reactors. And I've been hearing rumblings now for a few years that these are the way of the future and and a, a really amazing leap forward in in energy technology. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, so I think when most I know I when I previously when I've heard the term, you know, nuclear energy or nuclear power plant, I think of those huge, huge plants. Um, and the idea is that they're unsafe. You know, you think of Chernobyl and um, Fukushima, and um, that sound, seems really scary, and they seem really big and just impractical. Um, but the newest technology are called um, small nuclear reactors. I think that's not the official name, but SMRs um, and micro reactors, and they're very small. They can be um, they're small plants or nuclear production objects, I guess. Can you give it's us an idea? Plant. When we say small, how I mean, I think of the huge yeah, so cooling towers. Being, mm-hmm, it can be made, produced in a, a factory and then shipped to a location. So the small ones, especially small, meaning like the micro reactors can even be shipped on the back of a truck bed. Um, wow. So that's small. Now I feel like I'm living in the future when I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Talk to me about the laws that existed in West Virginia that uh, that did not allow you know any kind of exploration into to nuclear energy. Probably well intended, but what was the the basis behind them? So in the early 1900s, um, West Virginia passed a law that just um, nixed any possibility of any kind of nuclear production. And my understanding is the historical basis was that is just was a because coal was really big in West Virginia and because um, nuclear was scary for, for a lot of people. Yeah, well, you know, the the pioneers like um, uh, Marie Curie, uh, you know, literally died from from learning what they learned about, uh, you know, yep. radiation and, and nuclear material. Um, do, do most people, when they hear of nuclear power, do they associate that with being a low-carbon power source? Or do you think, I mean, look, I remember Three Mile Island, I think it was back in 1977, and, and I was only, you know, 12 or 13 at the time. That put a lot of fear in a lot of people's minds about, uh, you know, nuclear power must be very unsafe and it's going to pollute the whole world. Is, do people generally have a favorable reaction to nuclear power, or is that, that fear that it's going to pollute everything still out there? I think that the sentiment around nuclear power seems to be changing um, to be more favorable because of these new technologies and just the understanding that um, the Three Mile Island and Chernobyl were outlier events. They were um, absolutely catastrophic, but they they're not typical of of nuclear production and. That's been many years, and there's been a lot of progress made in terms of um, nuclear technology to make it more safe. 
Okay, and right now, of course, there's a huge push to uh, to limit, you know, carbon-based fuels like coal, for instance. Mm -hmm. So, what is this going to mean for, uh, for instance, West Virginia's economy? You mentioned that uh, coal mines are a pretty big part of the state's economy. I think it's um, an amazing opportunity for the state and for the state's economy in terms of of jobs because. Historically, West Virginia has been an energy production state. Um, and while coal production is still occurring and the U.S. still uses coal um, to as power, that is definitely declining and it will probably continue to decline. And I, nuclear energy production is a great opportunity, um, particularly for West Virginia to get in on and be a leader um, in producing nuclear energy. One of the benefits that West Virginia has is because of all these old coal mines, there's um, a lot of infrastructure already in place for production and for power. So transmission lines is a really big thing. Um, and they, they already exist. So putting a nuclear power plant, a, a smaller one, like a micro, micro reactor or an SMR on and an old coal plant facility is is a win-win because you're rehabilitating that facility that was a coal producing facility um, and you're already using the available infrastructure to, to do so. Okay. How does the federal government interact with states on this? I, I, is there any kind of friction between the federal government and states that want to move ahead with uh, with this particular type of nuclear energy? So regulations are still, there's still lots of permitting and regulations and it's a multi, um, there's lots of layers to this, but the federal government has been signaling more support for nuclear energy production. Last year in that huge infrastructure bill that the federal government passed, there were, um, there are incentives for states to do exactly this, to um, rehabilitate old coal power plants as nuclear power plants. So that's a really big signal from the federal government to states that we're going to support you in this. Now, I have to ask this just because there's a part of me that kind of wants to, you know, jump ahead to the Jetsons kind of future. But will these uh, small uh, nuclear reactors, these modular reactors, will they ever be small enough that like individual towns or neighborhoods or even households will, will have their own source of energy generation? So that's what's really exciting, particularly about the micro reactors, is they are small enough for small towns um, to be using as their power. So I originally started researching it because I work for an organization in Alaska and Alaska's energy prices are sky high compared to everywhere else in the nation, pretty much. Um, and there's many very rural communities that um, get very cold, they have to stay warm, and they use diesel, which is incredibly expensive. And micro-reactors have been um, suggested as one possibility to, to offset that diesel use in those very rural villages in Alaska. Oh yeah, and and everything that arrives in Alaska, you know, usually comes what by ship or or by plane. So it's very yeah. very expensive. Well, this is exciting news. Uh, is there a timeline in which we can expect to see more uh, movement on this? Uh, or are there other are there reasons that people are dragging their feet, or states, or or even the federal government? I think there's a lot at play um, in nuclear energy things that I don't have as much knowledge on, like um, uranium. Uranium plays a big piece in nuclear energy production, and that's not something that um, it's 
difficult for the U.S. to get enough uranium currently. Um, in terms of timeline, it will be years down the road. I don't know how many, uh, because it, there is a regulatory permitting process that you know that needs to be in place, um, and also just as a new technology. All right. Well, this is very promising, because I, you know. I don't know if you've noticed, there aren't a lot of people that have really good vibes about <laughs> energy right now, just because everything is so dang expensive. Again, we're talking with Quinn Townsend. She is the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum and also a Young Voices contributor. And Quinn, for people who would like to follow your work, what's the best way for them to do so? Sure. I am Quinn underscore Townsend, numeral one, at Twitter. Um, that's that's probably the best place to find my work. Okay. And of course, we'll have a link to your article uh, in Roanoke.com about uh, Southwest Virginia's northern neighbor wanting to go nuclear. Quinn, thanks so much for visiting with us. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Eric Peterson back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, you wouldn't know this to just look at him, but he's also kind of a guy in the know about cryptocurrency, which apparently there's been a lot of talk about cryptocurrency here lately, Eric. Uh, tell me about you. You work for Satoshi. Uh, yeah, Satoshi Action Fund. We're a nonprofit organization that works to support uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining uh, across the country. And this has obviously been an exciting uh, and really scary two weeks for a lot of folks uh, in the cryptocurrency space. So, I, I know some people are seeing the initials FTX a lot in the news, and they know, well, there was a lot of money involved, and it disappeared. And, you know, this uh, Sam Bankman Freed uh, apparently, you know, is, is absconded with a bunch of stuff. Can you kind of just walk us through what exactly? Exactly happened with this particular cryptocurrency, and then we can talk about some of the broader implications for what this means for crypto in general. Yeah, so FTX was a, a Bahamian-based a trading platform. So if you wanted to buy cryptocurrency, you could take some money from your bank account and go buy some Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or any of those other coins uh, on the FTX platform. Uh, about two weeks ago, it came out uh, that a company that was related to FTX that they were funding called Alameda Research. Um, had a balance sheet that was mostly full of tokens that the uh, exchange FTX had printed out of thin air. And so what happened is that caused that token price to decline precipitously. Uh, there was sort of a run on the crypto bank where everyone said, oh my God, I am not sure that FTX is actually holding my funds like they're saying I did, right? If I bought a Bitcoin and it's on that exchange, you expect them to have a Bitcoin that they can then transfer to you. Uh, it turned out that FTX had been spending uh, both a lot of money in politics, on stadiums. Uh, people might remember their Super Bowl ad with Larry David, um, and they had been spending all that money. And it turns out that they were not holding enough of the customers' funds. And so a lot of folks um, who had uh, cryptocurrency on that exchange are sort of left holding the bag as they move into bankruptcy. Now, is this being used to give all of cryptocurrency a, a black eye or to call for regulation of all cryptocurrency? Yeah, I, d I definitely think so, right? You've already seen members of Congress talk about this. Uh, it, it certainly has made it worse, uh, the fact that he had been lobbying so heavily in Washington, D.C. 
Um, he's had meetings with the Commodity Future Trading Commission. He has testified before Congress uh, against the big banks uh, doing everything in 2008 that he said he would never do, and then turned around and did the exact same thing, uh, causing, you know, again, uh, customers to lose tens of millions of dollars. Um, so I, I think his, his visibility is going to uh, cause more of this. But this is, of course, not the only bankruptcy of, of new sort of cryptocurrency or financial technology companies where companies have said they've been holding customer assets and they've turned out to be uh, trading them in a rather risky fashion and then eventually causing them all to implode. So I have to ask uh, the people who are running for the doors right now in crypto, bad move? Are they being are they being panicked where really they should sit tight? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. One of the things that it's been really good to come out of this, right, is instead of people leaving the cryptocurrency on exchanges, they've been taking them and taking self-custody of them. Anybody who has cryptocurrency on exchange can do so. Uh, you just have to download a wallet. You can put it on your phone. You can put it on your web browser. And that's why if something like FTX goes under, even if you bought it on the FTX platform, you still hold that cryptocurrency. Think of it as like taking your, your actual dollars out of the bank and sort of putting up in your mattress, except it's just electronic. Um, so you're not actually sitting on that sort of stuff. And that that's a lot of what cryptocurrency really started to be. There wasn't this idea of these big centralized exchanges where everybody was going to hold all of their crypto. You know, it really started off this idea that people would have much more control over their financial freedom online. So I think that's been very good. Um, but yes, there's certainly been a lot of selling pressure. Bitcoin had been around $20,000. Uh, it had gone to a little under $16,000 and it, it's moving back. And, you know, this is all um, sort of been precipitated at the same time that there's been a massive uh, loss in cryptocurrency prices um, and the tech sector to be taking a lot of hits as well. Obviously, Meta had large layoffs. Amazon is having large layoffs. Twitter is having large layoffs. So a lot of these uh, technologies that were doing very well two years ago are, are certainly struggling right now. Okay, so I, I have to ask this, and, and maybe I should put my tinfoil hat on before I do so, but um, my understanding is that central bank digital currencies are rapidly becoming a thing, and, and they're right now in the proposal state for many places, but it looks yeah. like that is the direction that at least many world governments want to take things. Um, is this in their interest to, to cast some shadow on uh, crypto so that people, well, you know, the government runs this, nothing could possibly go wrong there. Is, is it wrong to think that maybe they might take advantage of some of this panic? Oh, absolutely. Again, the, the sort of ethos of cryptocurrency, right, is to have that separation from government and money uh, because the, the Fed can print dollars um, the same way that FTX decided to print all their token and ultimately gamble away um, the customer's very real and very valuable cryptocurrency. So, you know, this is a problem that's going to come out. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, again, more people will instead learn the opposite lesson, which is we can't trust these centralized authority and will take uh, control of their future. Um, but I, I especially think you're going to start seeing uh, more talk about that from certain parts of uh, the, the politics in this country. Uh, but the new prime minister of Great Britain has already talked about a central bank digital currency. Um, so I think those calls will only continue to increase as they use these examples uh, for why the government needs to step in. Now, as I understand it, it's already illegal, you know, for someone to uh, uh, to steal billions of dollars. That's a crime, and to bribe politicians, that's a crime, and so forth. Um, it's it's there's nothing new. It wasn't like oh, a new uh, a new type of crime has suddenly materialized. It sounds like someone took advantage, and when people thought they were buying Bitcoin, for instance, they were actually buying an IOU, if I understand it correctly. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Is they would see, you know, it get debited in their account on the exchange, and it turned out there was just no asset there. Uh, but you know, one of the important things to talk about is this wasn't a United States company. You know, FTX was in the Bahamas. So there's, you know, you're going to hear a lot from politicians of, oh my God, well, how did we let this happen? Well, you know, you couldn't actually use FTX if you're in the United States unless you're using a virtual private network to say that you were in, you know, Europe or the Bahamas to actually use this platform. So, you know, this hasn't necessarily been a failure of United States regulations, though obviously a lot of the money he was trying to give, uh, I think, was to try to sort of backdoor his way into uh, being legal in the United States because at the time uh, they were not. Well, some interesting, I've seen some interesting questions arise too about uh, donations that he made, you know, political donations, and as well as uh, ties even to, to Ukraine that, uh, that have, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different conspiracies floating around out there, but it appears there may actually be some, some actual connections too that, that make this even murkier. Yeah, it's going to take a long time to untangle this web. I think when FTX went bankrupt, something like 130 other companies that were related to FTX also filed for bankruptcy protection. So sort of untangling that web will be very close. But, you know, it it certainly looks like uh, they were taking a lot of that money and trying to buy a lot of political goodwill, whether it was donating to good causes, uh, you know, obviously something like helping out the people of Ukraine as Russia invaded. You know, most people aren't very upset with that. Um, but but I think he really caused a lot of problems in the cryptocurrency industry when he said, well, we're going to go comply and we're going to help write the rules. And a lot of the other folks in this industry were very upset by that. And I think uh, probably got them to look very closely at their balance sheet. Uh, and ultimately, it was that balance sheet leaking that ultimately took them down. They were going to go down at some point because their mismanagement was so bad. But the sort of publicity of that balance sheet uh, is really what started this two weeks ago. Eric, one of the things that uh, I I have found attractive about to cryptocurrency is the fact that there's actually competition. I mean, there there are some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin that are trusted and have been around for a while. Ethereum is another, and there's other new ones that are up and comers. I like that competition because I believe that really does provide incentive for people to deliver and to to be better, you know, than the next uh, cur- cryptocurrency. Is this going to stifle um, those types of cryptocurrencies? So I think I'm hopeful for the industry that the sort of cryptocurrencies that have just always uh, promised gigantic returns uh, with nothing really backing that, no new technology, not actually going to fix anything. Um, I think those ones are going to go out. But there's still a lot of cryptocurrencies. Like you said, Bitcoin obviously uh, been around for the longest. Uh, you know, Governments continue to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Ethereum uh, continues to be strong. And a lot of the cryptocurrencies built on top of Ethereum uh, to allow for transactions to go at very low cost across borders um, still have a lot of value. It's the sort of meme coins and you know people just spinning cryptocurrencies out of thin air and pretending that they have value. I think people are going to really start to take a harder look at and say, uh, I just don't want to you know throw $500 on exchange and hope this thing's 10x is in value. Um, I need to really look at you know, what is this cryptocurrency and what ecosystem and what technology does it really have behind it? And we've got about 30 seconds here, but where's a good place for a person to start getting their mind around crypto if they're not already informed about it? Yeah, well, we recently relaunched the Satoshi Action Fund website. We talk a lot about Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, um, how it revolves around government, and of course, um, you know, what you can do to self-custody your wallet. And again, I, I hope that more people learn the lesson um, to hold their own cryptocurrency, don't trust the centralized exchanges because 
Um, that's sort of why crypto was invented in the first place, right? The trustless peer-to-peer digital currency. Uh, we didn't need to you know, reinvent the financial legacy financial system on top of it to make it work. Very nice. Again, we're talking with Eric Peterson. Eric, thank you so much. Where can people follow you on social media? Uh, they can follow uh, Satoshi Action Fund. That is where I am most uh, on social media. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. For our fourth and final segment today, I'm happy to welcome Sophia Warringer back to the program. And uh, Sophia, good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be back. I understand you have good news. Well, at least I'm treating this as good news. I had no idea that there was an International Men's Day, but November 19th apparently is International Men's Day. How did that How did that escape my notice? I just should have been celebrating all this time. Well, it's an interesting question. I think a lot of people around the world will roll their eyes at the thought of men having a day of their own. Or isn't every day International Men's Day? Why do we need a argument is that actually championing men is important because everybody benefits when men flourish. And there are some aspects where being a man is not an advantage. For example, in the UK, and I imagine there'll be similar statistics elsewhere, but three quarters of suicide in the UK is men. And that is tragic. And we need to be championing inequality wherever we find it. And feminists need to be championing the cause of equality, whoever it is that's falling behind, not just when it's women. Feminism is about equality after all. It's not about female dominance. It's not about dominance of a particular sex. And so therefore, when true feminists, I believe, should be taking up that cause. And so International Men's Day, which may seem very much an unlikely feminist cause, I think actually is a cause that feminism should take up. Um, And I think it's it's important for a few reasons, like I've mentioned, suicide, obviously mental health issues, men fall behind in education, boys fall behind in education, they're like more likely to have industrial accidents, they're more likely to have deaths related to alcohol addiction, for example. All of these things make it really important that we champion the cause of men where they are falling behind, while still acknowledging that there will be some ways where they have an advantage too. Your article in uh, 1828.org.uk about uh, International Men's Day is a feminist cause. You talk about how historically uh, societal structures and norms and even biology have typically advantaged males, but it seems like in in recent years, males are falling behind in, in a lot of different areas. Definitely in some areas, for example, education. So we have standardized exams that are taken at age 16 GCSEs and girls have outperformed boys in GCSEs since they were founded. And it's quite a significant gap. The last result showed a 9% percentage point gap between girls and boys results. And that was across the board in every subject that girls led boys, apart from in physics and statistics. Um, So I do think there is 
some work to be done here. Maybe it's about boys' learning styles. Maybe it's about boys' um, motivation or their focus or the way teaching is tailored to a particular type of a, a person. But what I think is really interesting and what we need to avoid is stereotypes, right? So there was a professor um, of education, actually, Professor Alan Smithers, and he made the comment that maybe girls are just cleverer. This is why they are performing better in these exams. And I do think that's quite a problematic statement. We wouldn't make that statement in the reverse. We wouldn't say, oh, maybe boys are just clever. That would rightly cause an outrage. And so I think when it's seem to be a minority, right? When you seem to be um, talking about someone you think is has the advantage, it's easy to make them a punch bag. It's easy to make them a punch bag for criticism and for stereotypes. But that is as dangerous to anyone, whether they you see them to be in the, on the up or on the down. And he also made a really interesting comment, which I take issue with, was that the reason that boys were falling behind in COVID was because they were just playing on their PlayStation while girls are studying. Again, a huge generalization, which I don't think would be accepted about any other group. Sophia, one of the things I really appreciated about your article is uh, it's it's a very positive take on feminism. And I'll admit, I, I kind of had in the back of my mind, well, feminism means that, you know, you're against, you know, the patriarchy, you're against males in general. But uh, you're, you make a very strong case that, look, if we're going to be serious about equality, then we have to be serious about equality for everybody. And I, I applaud you for doing that. That's a that's a much more productive approach that I think uh, sparks much less conflict than, than we already have. I think it's really important because we thrive as women, we thrive as men when we work together. For example, only a third of eligible men in the UK take paternity leave after the birth of a child, but it's shown to be very closely correlated with the increase in maternal mental health if the parent, if the father takes parental leave. And Therefore, women are benefiting from something that we should be championing in men. And we need to move away from this narrative that feminism is angry, it's anti-men, it's pitting men and women against each other. That's not true. Feminism in its truest form, and maybe it needs to return to this, and maybe the kind of modern liberal feminist movement needs to look at itself a bit and find out whether this is true. But feminism in its truest form should be about equality and not dominance and should be about creating and promoting harmony between the sexes. Yes, championing where one is dominant over the other, and that needs to be called out. And yes, addressing issues where women are being abused or where they are being taken advantage of or where structures of society are against them fulfilling their full potential. Absolutely. But coming at it from an angry stance, coming at it from an anti-men stance helps no one and alienates our biggest ally, right? As women, our biggest ally is the other 50% of the population that are men. And we need them, too, to join the cause of true equality. And true equality is not female dominance. There's a line in your essay that I just absolutely love. And it says, true campaigners for equality should take up the cause of whoever is suffering, not just the causes that are in vogue. And that is such a great reminder for everybody. That's not just for, for the feminists out there. That's that's for all of us. Absolutely. Feminism is most powerful where it speaks up for whoever is falling behind, not just a particular type of woman or particular 
um, type even within the cause of feminism, sometimes it can be criticized for only championing the causes of white middle class women or only um, expressing grievances that are really very minor when you compare them to causes of women, for example, in um, Iran or Afghanistan and the plight that they face because of their sex. And those are the causes that feminism should be taking up, not the small plights of, of oh, somebody called me this and or somebody, you know, gave me a microaggression. That's not really the cause of feminism. That's just pitting people against each other and creating a grievance where it doesn't need to be one. And we need to look beyond just a very narrow base of white middle class women championing the cause and look to whoever is falling behind, whether that be minority women, whether that be men, and champion their causes too. Well, I have to admit, I... I really didn't realize that I was, you know, kind of thinking with some ideological blinders, but I, I kind of viewed feminism as more monolithic. And, and what you are outlining in your article shows, no, it's it's really not monolithic. You know, there there may be common goals, particularly the goal of equality, but I, it's it's really good to see that uh, someone is paying attention and someone is, is actually, I think, making a, a proper stand that, that lifts everybody instead of we need to lift only this group and at the expense of that group, that doesn't feel like true equality. Absolutely, I agree. And I think there is a lot of work to be done in the UK feminist movement about what the cause actually is. And I would argue that the cause of feminism is much broader than what it has been trying to achieve. And it actually needs to look wherever there is equality, it needs to champion that issue. And I think that it's also important, as I said, that on as women are being pulled up, pushed up, finding their way up, smashing glass ceilings, the way up is great. It does not mean that men have to be on the descent. So there is not this competition where one goes up, one goes down. There needs to be more of an understanding. So when one goes up, we all go up, we all benefit. We've got about one minute left, and I just have to ask, I, I really honestly had never heard of International Men's Day. Who started it? Where, where did it begin? So in the UK, we have a coalition um, called Boys and Men's Coalition, the kind of UK component of International Men's Day. And they look at issues that I've outlined that affect men and boys, whether that be overrepresentation of men and boys in the criminal justice system or falling behind in education or, um, as I said, like lower life expectancy, lower health outcomes for men. All these issues they take up and they do some great work championing particularly white working class boys who in the UK have very bad outcomes for education um, and they championing the cause of the UK. All right. Again, we are talking with Sophia Warringer, Warringer rather. And Sophia, for people who would like to uh, dig a little bit deeper into this topic, of course, we'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Where can they follow your work or follow you on social media? They can follow me on Twitter at Sophia Warringer. Okay. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. 